Uh, well, hope and despair play big parts in everything that, that I end up trying to do anyway. I'm sure I know it's the same for you, I can feel. And I, I sense it's the same for everybody who writes. So the thing about spring, I suppose, was that it went so close to despair that there was nowhere else for it to go except right up against despair, at which point you find what the hope is. Sometimes that hope is deep in despair. Hope produces itself out of the lack of hope. Hope is like the blade of a knife, and you are balanced on it rather than cut by it. You just heard the voice of Ali Smith, who is joining me on the podcast today. In this episode, our very first episode of How to Proceed, she talks about writing in a time of lockdown, about how her season quartet came about, about form and despair and hope. My name is Lynn Ullman, and together with the House of Literature in Oslo, I'm honored to welcome the Scottish author Ali Smith. She is the writer of a number of critically acclaimed and award-winning plays, short stories and novels, most recently her shape-shifting masterpiece quartet of novels, Autumn, Winter and Spring, and the forthcoming Summer, which will be released in August in the UK. Ali Smith is one of the great storytellers of our time. For me, her writing is filled with light and urgency. It is endlessly innovative, and it's always beautiful. Welcome, Ali Smith. Welcome to Oslo. Welcome to the House of Literature. Welcome to this first episode of How to Proceed. You're the very first writer that I wanted to talk to. Thank you, Lynn Ullman. I am so chuffed and happy to be here. I wish I was there in person, but this will do fine. Where are you in person? I'm in the loft in, in our house. It's a tiny room. It's like one, two, three, four, five, six steps long and one, two, three, four steps wide. Um, and there's nothing in it now except this computer, uh, my writing desk um, and a, a carpet I put down the day before yesterday. Is this the room that you write in, that you write your books? No, it's the room I started writing my books in and then um, I moved to a new, <laughs> I mortgaged a house three doors or four doors along our street where I now write my books. But on this desk, I did write half my books. Yeah. Now I'm so happy to be back in this room. This is, you know, uh, yeah. So we're on the writing desk of sorts. You know, I wanted to um, start actually by asking the question that Daniel Gluck, who appears in several of the seasonal quartets books, Instead of saying, hello, how are you? He says, hello, what are you reading? And I think that's a wonderful way to greet someone. And yeah. I'd love to greet you that way now and say, what are you reading? Okay, what a good question. Uh, in this strange time, for, for the first few, what should we say, for the first weeks, the first two months really of us being in lockdown uh, in the UK, I was working, so I was reading nothing. And then I finished working just about 10 days ago, finished the, all the process of finishing a book. Um, and I started to read. And I, since then, it's been a really interesting experience what will work in this very pixelated time to read, because it's one of the hardest things I now know. And people have been saying to me all along, 
the hardest things about this time is lack of concentration because you are bombarded all the time with information, 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 non-information, non-information, non-information. Is that useful? Is that not? Um, and also your own, our own uh, metaphysical information <laughs> um, and uh, the, the metaphysical and psychological information of everybody around us. It is like a, it is a different atmosphere. We are being bombarded by different signals. So to come back to reading then was very interesting. So what I've been doing is picking randomly things off the tops of piles that are waiting around the house. So I picked up some Graham Green, couldn't read it. Picked up some Colette, really annoyed me. I love Colette. <laughs> but I'm like, oh, give me a break. Picked up D.H. Lawrence. Hooray, someone I can argue with, someone we can talk with, someone with whom there's an engagement on a different level from even those two writers who I love, who who will, would not work for me in this time. So uh, reading Lawrence about his, his book called Twilight in Italy, I felt like, oh yeah, I was in the moment. I was here, I was present. It is a, it is a question at the moment of being able to be present in dialogue with other people, with, with what's happening, with whatever it is that we coincide or collide with. So that was that was really interesting, experiencing those classic writers anew. Um, so say more about D.H. Lawrence and Twilight in Italy. What was it about it that engaged you and engaged the present? It was that it was about the present. Mm -hmm. It was about, because wherever you are with Lawrence, you are forced into the present because he is demanding that you respond. So he's demanding that you participate. So he'll tell you something so brightly, so vividly, and so vivaciously argumentatively that you will end up going, yeah, but, oh, wow, thank you. No, but, you know, and something happens, which is an engagement. That thing, that is so important to us, I think, right now, to be able to, to be present while everything is asking us to be absent <laughs> and to think about absence. We also have to be present. So there's, there's something about that. Anyway, yesterday, uh, the book I picked up was the um, a really slim version of Gilgamesh, which I really loved because something about the ancient has never gone away and will never go away. So that was good. And, and the other thing, we've been, Sarah and my partner and I have been doing through this time, even when I was working, we, we did this. We, I picked a book up at random off a shelf downstairs, kind of counted along the number of days of the month and picked a book off. And it was Boccaccio, surprisingly, mm -hmm. the Decameron. Um, so we've been reading one of those out to each other most days. And it's just, I can't believe how pertinent it is. 1348, he's talking about. It's about the plague. It's about people who go away take some space away from Florence um, and 10 people who are friends and strangers who just sit down and talk to each other, telling stories. Every day, one of them has to tell a story to the other 10 and then the next person has to. So you get 10 stories a day, 100 stories for 10 days. The proliferation of it does not ignore the present because you have in it everything that's happening. All the questions that human beings feel all the time, all the questions that come from a very pressurized time, and all the questions of power and authority. What are those questions for you? For me? Okay, so uh, we're in lockdown. And again, you know, at the same time in the UK, we're really not in lockdown anymore because uh, uh, the advice here has been very, very confusing to most people, uh, I think. But we're in, but we're in lockdown. So therefore, an authority is telling us how far or how little we can go, even though actually it's being rather uh, performatively libertarian about it. So those questions of authority are around everybody all the time right now. So the pressure back against it, you can feel it. You just in my own neighborhood, you can feel it. You can feel people's longing for release, longing for joy, even though there is supposedly some release. You can feel this 
all the time the pressure like a like something pushing against a lid um, and that comes out in a form of joviality and it comes out in a form of fury so so there's this I don't know what I, I it's very different in Norway isn't it right now well it's different it's we had a semi-lockdown but not like you but I'm interested in hearing more about what you said about the the fury and the joy which reminds <laughs> me of a novel of of you you know the oh. fury and the joy and just this this pressing against the lid tell me more about that okay um it's that's what it feels like it feels like uh you know and it's the other thing about being in in the uk over this time is the weather has been idyllic i mean it's it's really been beautiful it's been what we now call in our house lockdown weather because it's you know since march which was bright bright sunlight pretty much as soon as we were supposed to lock down bright sunlight and then into april the weather was balmy and so so much so that we have apples which are nearly out on our trees which are going red this is i would say three to four weeks ahead of time Uh, so the weather's been extraordinary so it's been surreal so then the traffic noise stopped because it was locked down and the garden filled with hedgehogs and squirrels, braver than I've ever seen them. Um, there's a clarity to the air. There's a clarity to the sky. There's, uh, you can now hear an airplane going over the top of us. That's been, there's been so much less of that. The occasional train chugging past. It's changed over the past couple of weeks. Um, but there's been, there was a sense of hiatus and metaphysical surreality and panic both at once. And that's what I mean, which is that actually the things which are real to us all the time as human beings and should be real to us, which is that we are contingent, <laughs> which is that life ends, which is that at any point everything is fragile and which is that any social structure which we've set up will only hold as long as it holds until someone decides to change it or it has to change. Those things all at play round beautiful sky, leaves coming out, Birds singing like I've never heard them. Butterflies back coming back to the UK that we've never seen for years, or you know, rare butterflies being reported that people haven't seen for years. That return of nature, at the point at which we are being bludgeoned by something natural to remind us what nature actually is, has been a gift of complexity, holding all of those things. I think that that I'm saying, and so the the the, the human state uh, realizing our contingency again, realizing our fragility, realizing the fragility of our social structures um, and networks and setups, remembering what it is to be communal, even in isolation, all of those things at play. It seems, um, I was reading, uh, rereading Spring before I read your remarkable summer that I've gotten a chance to read before it's been published. And this quartet is is just remarkable. But when I was rereading Spring, there was this sense, because I was reading it in, I think, April. Yeah. And so Oslo was also in part lockdown. The whole world was in some kind of lockdown. And there was almost a a prophetic tone in it. There was something, you know, Richard in it. His lungs are hurting. It's about um, tuberculosis. And it's certainly about uh, lockdown, not uh, all of us being locked down, but but people being locked in, the detainees, the immigrants and refugees in the UK. So this novel is all about different kinds of small 
tight spaces. And it felt prophetic when I read it, uh, because you wrote it before the coronavirus. But it, it felt as if it already had our time in it. Okay, that, those things you just said to me are, are just making me go, oh God, yes, they are in there. Um, my, uh, when I think about writing that novel, uh, all I remember is nearly going mad. Um, writing Spring was the has, was the hardest thing I've ever written. Um, because of, of all your books ever? Of all the books. Of all the books, oh. Writing Spring made me nearly lose my mind and I, I did not know why and I still don't know why but there was something in it which was pushing against me um, so forcefully and so uncompromisingly I mean normal okay so there have been pressurized times in my life before right this wasn't a particularly pressurized time in my life me writing this there've been you know like when we lose parents you know what it's like um, life changes and and I, I remember when, when my dad died um, I was writing a book called There But For That and I, it stopped and I came back to it months later and it was still there and I, it was as if it, it plugged back into me and I back into it and it simply continued regardless of what had happened to me it had held around me um, which amazed me and made me think and made me have utter faith in what we what we end up what the, the correspondence is between us and, and when we're working with have faith in it and it will hold with Spring, with Writing Spring it, I was. I felt utterly pushed to an extreme by it, and uh, so happy I am to hear you say it holds in a way that I could not have. That you don't, that we don't know. So I think when we write, we are tap rooted into something that knows much more than we do. It, it just does. I know that actually from 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 the act of writing very fast. Actually, say more about that. What do you, what do you mean by that? I've heard other writers talk about that. I don't really know what I mean, other than to describe it as as something that has that is rooted, that kind of comes through us from somewhere we don't know we've roots in, even, and we've no idea where it's going, but it comes through us. It's like the Rilke thing about being a reed through which a breath moves. It's a, it's a, and I don't mean to sound mystical, and I and I don't mean to sound um, precious. I I mean to sound very natural and um, properly uh, in the world, actually. Um, so we engage, but actually it is engaging through us, and so we do our best with it. So with Spring it felt that I was really driven by it, which in the end kind of leaves me going, well, what, what is it about what we do? Uh, what's this notion of the edit or the control at all? It is about edit to get something right, but it's also about give and take. It's about dialogue. It's about proper dialogue with the form, yeah? And the form itself is going to be natural because form is natural because form is, is what we are and what the world is and what nature is and what we make of things and what it makes of us and what we make of other things and they make, you know, form is, form is itself dialogic. So that dialogue I had with Spring was, well, was felt beyond me, I have to say. But what was so hard about it and how did that hardness manifest itself in anxiety or fear or, or just... <laughs> just sleepless nights or or yeah, something yeah. that was <laughs> fun but hard how how did that hardness it was really not fun it was no. really not fun i knew the responsibilities of spring were mountainous and I, and that the imagery of spring itself is mountainous the imagery in the book is about facing the mountain you are at the foot of the mountain and that mountain you know makes you realize your size and 
here comes this this new avalanche down the side of it. So what are you going to do? Yeah, that that's what it felt like. And it had all those elements of anxiety and sleepless nights. And at the end, I mean, I, I finished it. I, I, the first person I show anything to is usually Sarah, my partner. I don't show anything until I'm finished. Uh, and, and then I, I give it to her. And so I gave it to her and she read it. And she told me lots of things she thought about it and was seemed positive. And I was sitting going, is it, but is it a book? Is it really a book? Because it felt so like it had given birth to me rather than I'm you know the thing that we do it it had birthed me yeah I want to pick up on something you said there's so much to unpack here but you said we meaning writers um, writers have to have faith in what we're doing and that it will hold and another place in an interview I read with you or heard with you you said something about trusting the process so faith trust how do you do that and what do you do when you lose that faith in the writing process? I think we wait, um, is what we do. Um, I remember Tony Morrison saying this uh, thing which has run true throughout anything I've ever tried to do, which is that if we're stuck, we just have to wait. And that, in a sense, is also a, f- a form of trust. Um, I, I don't know how we do it. Well, how do you do it? You did finish, so you did something. What did you do? I, I know I've got a, a deadline coming and uh, I need to pay the mortgage. So there's also that. So you need to finish something. So you need to have hewn something or made something as uh, you know, out of whatever it is we make things out of um, to meet a deadline so that there will be heat in the house and the house can still be paid for. There is something about that very basic exchange that writers we meet to live. Uh, well, hope and despair play big parts in everything that, that I end up trying to do anyway. I'm sure I, I know it's the same for you, I can feel. And I, I sense it's the same for everybody who writes. Um, so the thing about spring, I suppose, was that it went so close to despair that there was nowhere else for it to go except right up against despair, at which point you find what the hope is. And sometimes that hope is deep in despair, you know, and that's what hope is. Hope produces itself out of the lack of hope. I think that's the description of hope. I mean, we can we can blithely talk about hope. But actually, hope is like the blade of a knife and you are balanced on it rather than cut by it. And so on that balance, you may traverse something <laughs> across which there's no other way to traverse it. <laughs> you know, there's only, the, there's only that tightrope blade of the thing. You traverse it as carefully and as knowing how much is at risk as possible. Yes? What exactly is at risk when you, mm-hmm. Ali Smith, sit down to write not just one book, but four novels that have been written in a very short period of time? And second question, why did you decide to write this quartet and give yourself these very short deadlines to keep with your aim to write about time in the time that you were writing I mean, in summer, and that hasn't even come out yet. It's right here. It's about now. It's about tomorrow. It's about George Floyd. It's about the virus. But it's also about, you know, all time. Um, okay. The thing that I keep thinking is about the story of the god Mercury who makes the first musical instrument by scooping out a tortoise or a turtle and stringing gut across it and then can play music. In other words, your everything is at risk. Everything gut is at risk to be able to make anything sing. Um, 
So everything visceral is at risk, is what, what it feels like. And there's a flippancy in Mercury, who is both the god of the, the underworld and the god of thieves and the god of crossroads and the god of trade. There's a, a deep jokiness in Mercury whose heels are winged. <laughs> you know, not his back, his heels. It's like, I, always, I always imagine like Mercury's going to have to fly upside down, you know, because <laughs> the, the heels are going to send you forward at a strange angle. And, it, you know, so, so these, these books that I have been working on arose out of a, a flippancy and also a possibility because we need flippancy. We need to be light. In fact, Mercury is all about lightness. We need to be able to be light as we traverse incredibly dark. We need to be light as we stay above depths that we can't fathom. Um, both senses of the word light. Um, so uh, the books arose out of me being uh, sort of flippant with my lovely publishers at Hamish Hamilton and Penguin, my publisher Simon Crosser, because we'd published How to Be Both, again, flippancy deadline. I handed in How to Be Both very, very late and said, I'm sorry, I've handed this in so late. And Simon said, no, no, it's okay. We can produce this book in six weeks. And that was 20, I started in 2015, writing autumn, the end of 2015 into 2016, and then Brexit started to happen. And so these books, which were a, a sort of light experiment about time, became about a time in which we have seen unprecedented change in the UK and across the world. So I had nothing to do with that choice. Again, I, I feel that the things we write choose us. And so we have to meet them and we have to meet them properly. So on that flippancy, that notion that this would all be very lightly done, uh, I would write these lovely pastoral books about the seasons. I've ended up having to write very different books than I ever imagined I would ever have to write. And the questions that have arisen from that, I, I'm still shaking my head over. I don't know whether it's worked. I don't know whether the novel can deal with those realities so close up and still last. I mean, we won't know that until, you know, I won't know that for five years, 10 years, maybe 50, you know, I'll be long gone and these books will be long gone or something in them will have held, I don't know. Because when you are writing with your nose pressed up against the sweet shop window or the slaughterhouse, um, then um, what is it that transfers through time? So that's that's at risk. <laughs> Everything that we think that aesthetics can do is at risk or the question of how it works. But then that's worth risking to find out how it works. I mean, that's I, I can't imagine doing, in, doing anything else, you know? And as I'm talking to you now, I mean, you've just finished Summer. Yeah. It's a remarkable novel. It will be out in August in the UK and yeah. probably a year later here in Scandinavia. In, in, the, in the, the words of Mered Elfson. You're a so Norwegian lucky. translator, yes. I am so lucky. I know, uh, we've, we've spoken about this before, Lynn. I, I know how much it means to be translated and I know how the best translators make things mean. And I feel very, very lucky to be in the hands of, to be the sidekick of Mered Elfson. I know that those books are working so well, and that's without knowing Norwegian. Although I think I know quite a lot of Norwegian, partly just from growing up in Inverness um, and a, having a, a kind of twin town Stavanger um, and uh, from the words that we share in common from the very north, because we share a lot in common from the very north. So so I've, I feel like a home well, understanding. Do you have example? Do you have an example of some words or well, bear, bear, things we share? Bairn and barn. And uh, the word for farm uh, in uh, Orkney, uh, if I read George Mackay Brown, who is from the very north of Scotland, something plugs into Orkney, plugs into, you know, to Norway, plugs back into the very north of Scotland. So we have these uh, language kind of conduits 
um, that when I hear Norwegian, I'm, I feel at home. Ali, I want you to read, actually. We want to have several readings in the, in the podcast. Uh, I got caught up in our discussion, and I, I just want to remember to ask you to read. And I was wondering if you could read the opening of summer. Is it okay to read from summer? Yes, yeah, Give you. us a preview. Thank you for thank you for asking me to. This will be my first, <laughs> as well from it. Um, the very beginning, yeah. From the very beginning. Yeah. Everybody said, "So," as in, "So what?" As in shoulder shrug, or what do you expect me to do about it? Or I so don't really give a fuck. Or actually, I approve of it. It's fine by me. Okay, not everybody said it. I'm speaking colloquially, like in that phrase, "Everybody's doing it." What I mean is, it was a clear marker just then of that particular time, kind of litmus, this dismissive note. It got fashionable around then to act like you didn't care. It got fashionable too to insist the people who did care or said they cared were either hopeless losers or were just showing off. That's a lifetime ago. But it isn't. It's literally only a few months since the time when people who'd lived in this country all their lives or most of their lives started to get arrested and threatened with deportation or deported. So, and when the government shut down its own parliament because it couldn't get the result it wanted. So, when so many people voted people into power who looked them straight in the eye and lied to them. So, when a continent burned and another melted. So, when people in power across the world started picking off groups of people by religion, ethnicity, sexuality, intellectual or political descent. So, but no, true, not everybody said it. Not by a country mile. Millions of people didn't say it. Millions and millions all across the country and all across the world saw the lying and the mistreatments of people and the planet and were vocal about it on marches, in protests, by writing, by voting, by talking, by activism, on the radio, on TV, via social media, tweet after tweet, page after page. To which the people who knew the power of saying so said on the radio, on TV, via social media, tweet after tweet, page after page, so... I mean, I could spend my whole life listing things about and talking about and demonstrating with sources and graphs and examples and statistics what history's made it clear happens when we're indifferent and what the consequences are of the political cultivation of indifference, which whoever wants to disavow will dismiss in an instant with their own punchy little so. So, instead, here's something I once saw. It's an image from a film made in the UK roughly 70 years ago, not long after the end of the Second World War. The film was made in London by a young artist who arrived in the city from Italy when London was one of the many places having to rebuild themselves in those years nearly a lifetime ago after the tens of millions of people of all ages all across the world had died before their time. It's an image of a man carrying two suitcases. He's a slight man, a young man, a distracted and tentative kind of a man, dapper in a hat and jacket, light on his feet, but at the same time burdened. It's clear he'd be burdened even if he wasn't carrying two suitcases. He is grave, slim, preoccupied, terribly keen, and he is silhouetted against the sky because he's balanced on a very narrow brick ledge which runs around the edge of a high building along the length of which he's doing a joyous and frantic dance with the beaten up rooftops of London behind him. No, more precisely, those roofs are way below him. How can he be going so fast and not fall off the edge of the building? How can what he's doing be so wild and still so graceful, so urgent and blithe, both at once? 
How can he be swinging those cases around in the air like that and still keep his balance? How can he be moving at such speed next to the sheer drop? Why is he risking everything? There'd be no point in showing you a still or a photo of this. It's very much a moving image. For several seconds, he does a crazed but merry high wire dance above the city, going far too fast along the zigzagging path of a ledge that's the width of a single brick. Is that it? That we want? That do it? It's wonderful. Thank you. I wanna, I wanna do a follow-up question right sure. after this reading. In this opening of the novel *Summer* and a uh, a whole essay about the word so. There is also an allusion to a film from 1956 by the um, Italian filmmaker Lorenza Mazzetti, who seems to be another companion. And she made, uh, Lorenza Mazzetti made this film uh, called Together. Yep. She's forgotten by, by very many But you, you've picked her up, and you've made both the film and her an important part of this book, just like you did with the um, artist Pauline Boti in another book. How do you find these companions, these artists, and, and how do you engage with them, or how do they engage with you? Mm. Tell me about that process. Okay. Um, with these books, again, starting them, I had no idea what or, or where they would go or what they would do. And with Autumn, I, I, I kind of, I sensed it would be something to do with Keats, John Keats, because of his very famous poem to Autumn, which basically changed everything in poetry. I mean, uh, you know, it came from a, a place, uh, from a different class. Uh, in English, and it came with a different form, a lyrical form, which allowed poetry to do something else and was very misunderstood in its time. But we know it now as the great, great poem. And there was Keats, died so young, with that fantastic energy moving through him so fast, like the life force that came through Keats. You sense it in everything he's written, particularly his letters, actually, where he's speaking. You sense the kind of electricity of that soul in the world out like a spark. But you go back and read a letter or you go back and read a poem and there's the energy. So I knew Autumn would be about that brevity. So I was looking at Keats. Then meanwhile, I just happened upon a picture by this artist, Pauline Boti, who I'd never heard of. I didn't even know there was a, a female pop artist when I saw this picture. I, I saw a picture and I was like, who's that? Pauline Boti, what a brilliant picture. Playing with gender, playing with image, playing with notions of what women are and collage and questions of how images work on us. Who's she? And then I looked her up and found she she also had died very, very young, this artist. And so I thought I knew about pop art and I didn't know about Boti. Now, how is that possible? I thought. So I went back and looked at them all and I read her about her life and the tragic shortness of it. You can look up Pauline Boti and see what happened in her short life and to her family also, very shrouded in tragedy. And I thought, I can't write about this. Um, and then it refused to go away while I was writing Autumn. And then more and more, I began to understand what she was doing with those images which she used, which were proliferate images of the 1960s, plus very political images in the 1960s. I mean, at one point she made a commission now lost, which featured Christine Keeler, who is the woman who was kind of used as a front for the, the Profumo scandal, which is all about nuclear secrets. But no, the, the scandal shifts across to whether or not it's about who had sex with whom. And Boating knew exactly what she was doing with this. So she pictured Keeler, but not the image that people expected of Keeler. So when you looked at it, you'd get a, a slight 
everybody knew what Kayla looked like from a very famous image of her sitting backwards on an Aaron Jacobson chair naked. Um, she, she took a slightly different frame from the, the photographer who'd taken all those pictures of Keeler. And um, so when, when you'd see the picture, something, you know, wouldn't quite, something is different. Something would just click in your head. Meanwhile, she lines up the picture with all the famous players in the drama above her head in the little balcony. But you look at this woman and something's not quite right. What is it? Anyway, Boti knew something about lies in Parliament, which then when I was writing Autumn struck home with me as something I couldn't ignore. So Boti was there and suddenly I thought, well, okay, if I've got these four books, maybe this is the way to go about this rather than imagining there's a plot to go with. Because I had no idea, absolutely no idea where the plot, what would happen in time or who would be in the books. Because every time you think you know something about a book, it does something else. It is. Every time yeah, you think you know it. something and then it's something else. What do you mean by that? What I mean is that you sit, I sat down with Autumn, for instance, thinking I'm going to write a book about a junk shop. I didn't write a book about a junk shop. I wrote the book that Autumn had to be because there were characters who just were in my head and wouldn't go away. So I had to answer them. And they came alive by themselves and you go with it. So again, coming to each book, I had no idea what each book will bring. When I got to summer at the end, I still had no idea what, what it would bring. So I kind of moved myself along a kind of structure which was, which had Shakespeare on one side as a hold bar for me and for the books and had these extraordinary women artists of the... 20th century also as a kind of a foothold because when you look at a booty picture never mind the tragedy oh my god the life that just comes out of that it's just like watching something it's like watching a flower on fast forward motion open when you see a booty picture the life that ah oh, like i was saying about keats the force of energy and, and joy actually that comes out of the work so in um winter the, the artist who befriended that book was um because it was very much about landscape and, and the natural and what we make of it, what it makes of us was Hepworth, Barbara Hepworth. And in spring, um, the artist was uh, so happy that this happened. These spirits behind the book, Tacita Dean, whose picture of a mountainscape, just it let us know how serious things are to look at it. And Tacita Dean can make a cloud work in such a way that we understand ourselves as ephemeral and also changeable <laughs> you know I mean, she, you know so the the gift that that art gave that book um and so with this book I had still no idea till very 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 late who or what the artist would be um until I happened on a sliver of a film which isn't yet available shortly will be available by this filmmaker Lorenzo Mazzetti who uh, came across to the UK after the Second World War to help on on farms and things with a with a group from the um, University of Florence, who ended up sort of homeless in London, got herself a job, found herself a place to stay, and then walked into the Slade Gallery of the Slade School of Art, sorry, the Slade School of Art, and um, holding up her pictures and said, "I want a place at the school." At which point, people at the Slade said, "That's not how you get a place at an art school. I'm afraid you have to apply." So she stood in the hall, the front hall, and said, "No, I want a place at this school. I brought my work. I want a place." and the powers that be said, no, you, you, I'm sorry, you need qualifications. Go away. Stop shouting. At which point a man came out of a room and said, who was this shouting about? And she opened her portfolio and showed him. She said, I want a place at the school. He said, why do you want a place at the school? She said, because I'm a genius. And he said, let's have a look at your work. Well, okay, yeah, okay. From tomorrow, you can be a student at the school. So she's a student at the Slade, um, finds a cupboard in the Slade not long after she starts there, full of film equipment. She's never made a film, she doesn't know what to do with it, but she starts to make a film. I saw a sliver of the film she made with that equipment and 
that's what prompted me. It's a picture of an image of a man dancing along a really thin ledge above a skyline of London, and he's carrying two suitcases, and you have no idea how he's not falling off there because he's going so fast. So what is it about this image that captured you? It means everything that the century means and meant. It is the impossibility of the burden and lightness and the merriness and the dance, plus the ruination beneath his feet. He has risen above it, but you know he's going to fall, but he doesn't fall. (laughs) It's the question of the immigrant that's been at the back of humanity since the start of understanding what humanity meant to each other since since the most ancient stories, since Gilgamesh, since um, Homer. And, and, I, and I know it's been at the back of this quartet for me from the very beginning of autumn, where Daniel is himself tossed up, as it were, in a dream on a, on a shore, lucky to be alive or is he dead? So those questions, that image. Anyway, Lorenzo Mazzetti, just to say, uh, was the only female member of uh, the free cinema movement, uh, which revolutionised the possibilities for film in the 1950s and into the 60s in the UK. And do we know about her? No, we know about Lindsay Anderson. We, you know, we, we, we know about Carol Rice. We know about the other members of the of free cinema, but um, almost nobody knows about Mazzetti. Why? She, why is that? Why, why, why do women artists fall into forgetfulness? Well, but men artists fall into invisibility too. Basically, artists fall into invisibility although women do tend to fall off the back of the canonical uh, more often than men do, partly because uh, the mainstream likes to take one route and uh, all those other possible routes just, you know, they get lost. Um, Partly that's uh, something which has been addressed by the last century. But then I wonder if all the other centuries also addressed it and we still just got lost, you know, just keep, just keep addressing it. Just keep digging ourselves out of wherever, you know, they bury us. Because I can't count the number of times that there's had to be a, a resuscitation of Angela Carter, one of the greatest writers ever. I mean, come on. Anyway, the, the, re, the rebirth process is, uh, it's up to us as well to know what it is that formed us and hand it on to the next generation too. Uh, Mazzetti, to me, I was I saw how powerful her images were for now in a way that I couldn't ignore, actually. Ali, I want to talk about the Seasons Quartet as a whole for a minute, because even though they are separate novels... We will meet characters again who have been in earlier novels. We will meet them again in later novels. Um, they are all political, as all your work is, really. Um, they all engage in art or with art. They all engage with Shakespeare. And I wanted to hear how the four novels in the quartet all engage with one Shakespeare play, his last four romances. Yeah. And I think Summer engages with uh, The Winter's Tale. Yes. Um, so talk a little bit about how Shakespeare, as one of many, became a companion. Okay. Um, thank God Shakespeare did. Um, <clears throat> I, I didn't know what would, these books would be made of, what, what they would be doing. I had no idea when I started writing Autumn. And then realised as the relationship between an old man and a young girl kind of happened in autumn, again, against my expectations, something about the tempest started to happen. What, um, what, hap- what happened? 
Well, something with the Tempest. You have an innocent uh, with Miranda and you have a, a wise old, seemingly quite magical man to her, Daniel Gluck uh, and Prospero. And at that point as well, Brexit was beginning to happen and it was about a small island. And it became about lies and governance and who's included and who's excluded. So then I was like, oh, great. Oh, God, the Tempest, the Tempest, Brave New World, the Tempest. Both those things were happening. The, the very notion of a character like Miranda from the Tempest reading Huxley's Brave New World just excited me beyond belief. You know, I was like, yes, that's what Shakespeare was all about. Nothing's not relevant, always. <laughs> and Winter was also being written at a time when the UK was asking itself questions about what Britain was. And there's Cymbeline. Cymbeline the less well-known of the final romances, but actually my favourite play of, of Shakespeare's, um, which is just a mess. I mean, it's like Shakespeare went into his parlour or pantry or whatever and just threw everything he had into a massive kind of cocktail shaker and shook it like this, like this, like this, and then poured it out. Is that, is that why it's your favourite? It's one of the reasons it's my favourite, because it, it forces story up against story, up against story, up against story, and then says, look... How would this ever work out? <laughs> What could ever come of this? And then he makes something beautiful come of it and something redemptive come of it. And in despair and in chaos, those are the times human beings will look to redemption. Um, thank God, because where else are we going to look? Like I was saying about hope and despair. So so there was, so Cymbeline loped alongside uh, me while I was writing Winter. So I knew there were two left, and there was Pericles and The Winter's Tale are the two other so-called romances of Shakespeare's late plays. Now, the late plays are so wonderful precisely because they go, there is tragedy, it's awful. There is comedy, thank God. What happens when you know, cocktail shake those two together? How do you get out of that? What can answer tragedy? What can answer comedy? Do they knock each other off their perch? But actually what Shakespeare makes of each of them is always transcendent, something beyond us, something which allows for the metaphysical, the mysterious to exist at the same time as a fixed form. And those things open that fixed form to something other. Um, so I had Pericles and um, The Winter's Tale left and I was like, well, summer, The Winter's Tale is really a, a summer play. So let's keep The Winter's Tale for, for the book called Summer. That's probably right. But I hadn't read Pericles. I didn't know Pericles until like two or three months before I started to try and write Spring. And Pericles, oh my God, what a wonderful play. But again, I mean, a wild kind of romp of tragedy after tragedy after tragedy after tragedy, shipwreck after shipwreck after shipwreck, at the back of which there is the question of good governance and bad governance. And at the core of which there's a character so good that it's like a joke. So good that she cannot possibly exist. So good that you know Shakespeare's taking the piss because nobody's that good. And this goodness exists in spring also in the shape of a little girl, yeah. Florence, and she's in a detention center. Yeah. And and she makes good things happen. She she goes into the place where where things are, are terrible and she makes good things happen. And in me, I'm like, but this can't be or this never happens or this I had the sense and the and the pain when I was reading it but also a sense of hope that you know I was <laughs> I kept talking to myself well this can't happen this can't yeah. be but could it but could so it? so what do you do when something looks so close that you can't open it you open it 
<laughs> what, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You're going to leave it closed? You, uh, you, what are you going to do? Something that is so badly done, that is so foul, that is such a foul excrescence on humanity. What are you going to do with it when it exists every day in society? Are you going to just say, oh, yeah, that's foul? Or are you going to say, that can be changed? Um, and what are you going to do when you think everything's fixed, when you think capitalism's got it all solved, when you think that the world is never going to change, that the systems by which we're living are fine, what are you going to do? You're just going to imagine they're never going to change, and then coronavirus happens, and then everything can change in the world. Do you think literature can change anything? Um, do you think your books can change anything, no, can make things no, better? No. I think people can change things. I think change always resides in people. And I think the point at which we sit down going, this can't happen, can it? It's the point at which something can change. This can't, this can't ever, this is impossible, isn't it? How come that's happening? Can it happen? That point whereby we know that if we don't change it, then the end of spring happens. There are a couple of themes that I've been lying awake thinking about because I've been rereading you and thinking about your books for the last, well, always uh, since I started reading you, but then intensively this, this, this last month. And I mean, there's always or very often there is a death, either a sudden death or a death that was expected or, or some kind of heartbreaking event. And I'm wondering, is your work a kind of, we say in Norwegian, Sorgarbeid, which means translated grief work? Because so many of your books are about someone in mourning or someone grieving, someone having died and someone else having to go on. I love that word. What's that that Norwegian word again? Sorgarbeid. Like sorrow work. Sorrow work, yes. It's yeah. even better than grief work, yes. Uh, um, and and your books speak to me because I think they are a kind of sorrow work. Um, I think I think that art is about mortality. I think I think I can't not think it. I don't know. I, I I don't like to think I know anything about anything, but I think I think that art and the lifespan are connected which makes the work of art, as in the work we do in it and the work it does on us, both about the shortness of life and the continuance of it. Um, So you can't have one without the other. You can't have continuance without the knowledge of the brevity. And, you know, we can't live without the knowledge of the continuance, even though we know how brief we are. So, yeah, grief work. But also, why would we not admit our contingency? We have to, to know what anything's worth. So it's also something about that and, and, and about the notion of what, what it will mean not to be here, what it means for those we love not to be here, what will survive of us and what of us is, just doesn't matter. You know, those things, are all, I think they're all held in the, the currency of art and the, um, the currency of language and the compact we make when we spend time with, in dialogue with anything aesthetically made. Alice Smith, I was wondering if you could read from Artful. Artful. Uh, okay. I placed a jar in Tennessee because I could not stop for death to see a world in a grain of sand where off the sacred river ran. Nobody heard him, the dead man alone and palely loitering rage, rage against the dying of the golden apples of the sun. You stand at the blackboard, Daddy. Let the traffic policeman wear black cotton gloves. And for that minute, a blackbird sang. What will survive of us? 
is love. It would maybe have been better if you could have come back from the dead a bit differently. I mean, if you could have come back as an array of different yous, like anyone with the original, like anyone with the originality you had when you were alive should naturally have done. For instance, if you'd come back as a dog, a mythical sort of one, one that could speak and would even occasionally do my bidding, occasionally sit at the table with me and converse while we ate our dinner. Or if you'd come back as a small star or a wing or a tongue of flame hovering above my head whenever I went anywhere or a, a mystic vision of, I don't know, an ibis or a waterfall which would just suddenly appear or a flowering bush or an angel or a devil or a rain of coins, a puff of mist with a big paw for a hand, like in the Italian picture of the woman being held in and embraced by nothing but a grey black rain cloud. Because when I think about what it was like to live with you, it was like all these things. It was like living in a poem or a picture, a story, a piece of music, when I think of it now. It was wonderful. That was beautiful. Oh, thank you. In um, Autumn, the young woman, the, the, one of the main characters, I mean, we meet her in the, in the passport control office. And she is forever trying to get the passport. And they, uh, the, the bureaucrats in the, in the office says, well, her head is wrong, the, the image is wrong, everything is wrong with the new pictures she keeps bringing in. And all your work deals with identity and what other people are seeing that you are and the stories we tell about ourselves and that we tell about others and how story and identity is so closely linked. Can you talk about that? Yeah, um It's an interesting thing right now for these books, particularly for me, because it really did surface at the point at which we became a passport rather than a person. And at a point in history where technology makes us algorithm rather than person, where we become data rather than a person. You know, if someone's going to wave a passport at me and tell me that's a person, I'm going to tell you that's not a person. We actually, you know, one of our one of our prime ministers actually said, you know, if you think you're a citizen of the world, you're a citizen of nowhere. Well, that's that's just rubbish, you know. We are all citizens of the world, and the you know the, the holding of a passport will give you some state rights, but that's you're a citizen of the state. It's not the world. The world is very different from the state. So therefore, all of those things which play into where anything tells us what we are, anything pins us down, and at the moment, so much wants to pin us smaller and smaller and smaller. You, you know, so that Elizabeth in that book takes a photo of herself, and the photo is not right because they say it's not her because it doesn't fit facial recognition technology. That's what now matters rather than Elizabeth. Facial recognition technology matters more than her face or more than who she is, in other words. So all of those things are now, they've always been at play. Identity has always been a, a question mark and how we are organized by whatever state we live in or live by. Um, it's always been a question, but now it's a really, really pressing question. And uh, just looking towards the um, American election, which is coming up shortly, and thinking about the ways in which data, and thinking back about our own elections over the past four years uh, in, in this country and the and the referendum, data is not people. So again, we're up against you know the narrative of what humanity really is, which is multiple, extraordinary, full of energy, uh, full of knowledge, full of dimension, which then comes down to binary data which then comes down to nothing except a decision, which then comes down to how that money will be spent, how that body will probably be used, 
uh, or will find itself uh, moving through life and what we can get out of that body of data rather than the body of the person. All of those things right now at play, I think, just in that very notion of a passport. So in that very notion of a passport, I mean, it's it's an act of uh, the passport control or the, the person who is looking at her pictures. And there's a lot of looking in all your books. There's looking and there's seeing and there's watching and there's surveilling and there's paying attention and there's bearing witness. Now, these words are very, very different. I mean, what would you say is the difference between, for instance, seeing something or paying attention to something and surveilling something? Because your books are about both. Yeah, they are. They are. And I suppose it's about the, the presence of, of the human spirit. And that will be why art and visual art is so important, I think, to me, because it asks us to look differently and to engage with something outside ourselves, which then reminds us of ourselves and reminds us of the outside of ourselves. I'm thinking of like pictures by Giorgione. So you look at a picture by Georgiana and the, and the person in the picture is looking back, is looking at you. Something about being able to see your eyes looking at me and me looking at yours. Here we are. We're both here. A bit like I was saying about D.H. Lawrence earlier, we're here. Surveillance doesn't mean we're here. It means that someone somewhere else can use something on an image as some kind of evidence of something, which isn't to do with the fact that we are here and will ignore all the psychological, dimensional Uh, things about being human flattened onto a screen, which then becomes about who owns the space across which you've walked in the surveillance, who owns the reading of that particular image, and who will use it for ownership. So those things are really different. So uh, to remind ourselves, to liberate ourselves from the ways in which we are seen, and to use our own seeing to remember ourselves and others as we are, as complex, live, shifting possibilities rather than something which can be flattened out, surface only. But that's very difficult to do for all of us. No, it's not. It's not? It's not. It's not difficult. I think it's a, a skill we've lost in a, in a century where things have been uh, more and more present to us on screen. Um, that just means we have to, to learn what to do with screens, which is what we're doing. Um, and humans are, humans are clever. We're endlessly clever. We will work out how to make this work for us rather than against us. But for the moment, it's a real shuffle of uh, possibilities. But the, you know, to get to that, we have to get to it. And at the moment, we're still in negotiation with our own relationship with technology. Ali, I want to ask, why is migration one of the, cent the central theme? or one of the central themes in the quartet? Okay, you can't tell yourself what to write. The thing which we engage with, we engage with it and we write it. But it does seem to me true that the story of our time is the story of the displaced person. The story of this time that we have lived and that we are living and that we are about to live has become more and more forcibly the story of who's allowed and who isn't, who gets to come in and who doesn't. Who is a stranger? What the stranger means? How a culture treats the stranger? This is an ancient story. It's an it's the story at the, at the center of all religions. Um, it's a story that we've uh, told ourselves over and over and over again since the start of any storytelling that we have recorded. Can I come in? Do I let you in or not? When you look at the number of people who had to cross the world, the mass of people who are having to leave where they are because there is no living there for them, How do we deal with that on a world where we all live in the world? Who decides who gets to come in? Who decides who doesn't and on what criteria? I think that's the story of our time. I think, it, I think we can't tell our time without telling that story. 
Thank you very much. Um, yeah. What we're going to do in this podcast is our next guest is the poet Terence Hayes. I wanted to forward a question from you. It can be about writing. Yeah. It can be about his writing. It can be about anything you want. But do you have a yeah. question from you to the American poet Terence Hayes that I can pass on in my conversation with him? I do. Um, first of all, I want you to thank him for American Sonnets because what a book. What a book. Um, thank him for knowing that we have to break form apart by using form. Fantastic. But what I, well, my question for him is, in a standoff between Trump and poetry, what happens? Wonderful. That's, that's a great question. Thank you so okay. much. Now let's do the final reading then Okay. from How to Be Both. Okay. Long gone the picture I expect. Long gone the life I, the boy and the man I, the sleek, good, sweet-eyed horse, Matoni I, the blushing girl I. Long gone, torchbearer, Ferrara seen from the back, ink on paper folded, torn, eaten, wasp nest shredded into air, burnt away to ash, to air, to nothing. Oh, I feel the loss, dull, the ache of it, because I had it, the place where his legs met his body, the muscular dark where his tunic flared up in the breeze as he went. I had it like telling the oldest story in the world because there's a very pure pleasure in the curve, like the curve of a buttock. The only other thing is good to draw is the curve of a horse. And like a horse, a curved line is a warm thing. Good natured will serve you well if not mistreated. And the curves of his sleeves concertinaing down and back from his shoulders, blanket stitched then scallop bite edge round his waist, a double yarn strand to hold him well. Mm. I like a twist of a yarn, two strands twisted together for strength. I like a length of rope, the rope after a hanging they sold. I remember in the market was cut into pieces you'd buy for luck, so you'd never yourself be hanged. I mean, what was, was I? Surely not, never, was I hanged? Oh, oh, was I? No, pretty sure I wasn't. But how did I then end? I can't recall an end at all, any end I ever can't, any demise, no. Because maybe, maybe I never ended. Hey, I did that picture. Hey, can't hear me. Thank you. Um, that was a beautiful reading. I just want to ask you because so many, I mean, you just read from How to Be Both. And all your work is so... Before the story, before anything comes form in all your work, how do you think about form when you work? I don't. <clears throat> I don't think about it. We can't think about it while we're working until it becomes apparent when we're making it. But I think about form as a reader. Now that I'm, well, I'm in my late 50s, now I know that we live in form and that those books that I read, they've made me me. They've formed me, but also that we live in them in the form without even knowing that we have them in us, which is why I think reading is so important, so important. I mean, there's a, there's a novel from the 1950s, um, an English novel called The Go-Between by a man called L.P. Hartley. It was a very celebrated novel in the 20th century. Less People know about it less now than they did then. It's a really, really fine novel, The Go-Between. I read that book when I was about 16, 17. Um, and then I reread it again about seven, eight years ago, having not read it in between. I swear, as I got through that book, I remembered screes of it off by heart as I read it. And I realized that that book is inside me, although I can't access it without the book. 
the book is still inside me. I mean, I would I happened on paragraphs and I was like, I know this. I know this like I like I know the corner of a room. So we live in form. I mean, there's a, a friend of mine um, who told me a story about a man who had been incarcerated. He'd been a hostage and he'd been incarcerated for a long time in solitary confinement, who basically in that solitary confinement unfolded inside him pretty much everything he'd ever read. It just was there. And because there was no other place to go, as it were, there it was waiting for him like an internal library. Um, we are not alone because we read. We are peopled. We are multiple because we read. As soon as we open a book, we are communal. We are not lonely because we are able to be with others in other forms. I can't describe it any other way than that. The knowledge that form is what made us. The written form has made our language, has made our understandings about meaning, because that's what language is. It's how we make meaning. We are formed by form, live in form. Thank God for form. Let's make our forms as well as we can so that those who come after us will have somewhere to live. And let's make our societal form as well as we can. And if it is being made in the way that we don't like, let's ask it to not be made like that by the possibility of other forms. I just want to ask you, because so many of your books is really about voice. It's about the silent voice and about the voice that speaks. And how do you navigate And how do your characters navigate between just the need to not say anything, the need for silence because there's nothing to say, and the need to speak and to speak out, the meaning of voice in your work and using that voice or refusing to use that voice or not having a voice? Oh, man. You know, the thing about voice is that there's no voice without a story. And then there's no story without a voice, so that everything has a voice, everything. Um, even things which don't speak human language have a voice. So voice is everywhere all the time. So if we if we see that uh, happening, that the importance of everything changes because there are all sorts of languages around us all the time, plus all sorts of silences, plus silence itself is a language. So, you know, when, when writers who are trying to write, see, they, they ask for advice and they say, how can I find my voice? It's like, you don't want to find your voice. It's like you want to allow the voice of whatever it is, the form or the story that you're telling is to come to you. You have to allow that voice. You have to hear the voice and, and deliver it. There, then that voice brings with it all its utterance, but also all its things it doesn't say. Because everything said holds an underscore of silence of the thing that is not being said when the thing is said. So to write voice you just have to write voice and that voice if you allow it if you don't put your voice in between it and and you then that voice will get heard actually that's all we that's i think that's all right we do len i think i think you you'll know that too is we just we just deliver the voice and the voice in conversation with other voices and as soon as you put a voice in conversation with another voice you have a version of society because you've got human language and you've got dialogue in a time and between people So do you have an understanding of how people are socially living? But you said so, something interesting there. You said to to find that voice, it's not yeah. really about finding your voice. It's actually putting the the me, the I away. You know, this it's a kind of selflessness that goes into writing. Yeah. yeah, and I think that, and I know you know this, I think even when we are writing about ourselves, we know that we are not, that we are actually writing about how language works, how life has worked, something that is much larger than the self. And 
may involve the self passing through that story, but the story is larger than the self. Oh my God. And to do that uncompromisedly is the aspiration and to do it properly, I think. Wonderful. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you so, so much. Talking to you has been so, oh God, Lynn, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Big love. And love to my friend, Lynn. Bye-bye. Bye, darling. This podcast was produced by the House of Literature in Oslo. Tune in for our next episode of How to Proceed in August, when Lynn Ullman is joined by the American poet Terence Hayes. And please check out our show notes for links to some of the things Ali and Lynn talked about.